listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, you can text us easy now. Just text to 2057. That's it. 2057 for Reality Check Radio. That's for all the hosts. Just uh, send us your message. We'd love to hear from you. Criticisms, constructive or otherwise, uh, suggestions. And we particularly love the love. So keep sending the love. You can also email us at uh, info at realitycheck.radio. That will get to us too. Now, stand by. You're about to have your head slightly exploded because. One of the controversial things that happens in public policy is we put a price on human life. And every time you mention that to a non-economist, they can start screaming at you. And if you're one of the screaming people, just stay tuned, stay calm, and just think about this a little bit because we're about to have that explained to us. Because to someone trained or modestly exposed to economics, it is obvious that human life has a price on it. You put a price on it yourself, and governments put a price on it all the time. It just may not be mentioned, because every decision that you make uh, involves uh, making trade-offs, and we trade-off risks, and we trade-off the risk to our lives and other people's lives, probably every day if you think about it. And so to help us through this, we've got economist uh, Martin Lally. Good morning, Martin. Good morning, Rodney. Now, you're an economist. You were at Victoria University for many years. You're now retired. Yes, correct. But How long? Doing, doing, doing consulting work. Doing um, consulting work. So anyone that needed some economics analysis, you're the man, you're available, and they and people can find you online and contact you. Correct? Correct, yep. Yeah. And um, how long were you at Victoria for, Martin? Uh, 35 years. My goodness. My goodness, that's a long time. So you're living in Wellington. Just by way of introduction, what got you into economics? Um. I was um, training to be an accountant and I had um, obtained my undergraduate um, accounting degree. And to become a member of the Society of Accountants, I had to do some additional papers, which would then give me the academic um, component to membership of the Society of Accountants. I would then have to um, work in an accounting-related job for two or three years. So I had these two additional uh, university papers to do um, in order to um, meet the academic requirements for membership of the society. Uh, One of them was uh, taxation and um, the other one was uh, an introductory course in financial economics. And I really loved that um, introductory course in financial economics. It was, to me, it was the perfect mix of economics and accounting, accounting being very uh, practically oriented and um, economics having more intellectual substance. Um, Finance was the the perfect mix of the two. I was quite um, enchanted with it. And that prompted me to um, switch 
from um, what I was doing at that time. I was working as an accountant, working for a CA firm. It prompted me to go back to university and do further um, work in financial economics. Um, and that took me down the path to becoming an academic and then um, subsequently um, to getting involved in a consulting work, which I'm still involved in. What do you particularly love about economics and do you still love it? Well, the aspects of economics that I love are um, using rigorous, rigorous methods to try to answer practical questions. And the area of economics that I um, have specialised in is, is financial economics, which is concerned with trying to value things whose value comes from their future cash flows. So trying to, if you like, discount back future dividends to value equities, to value instruments like options uh, and so forth, and investment projects. Um, so that's that's uh, my, my area, valuing things. Um, so I might be looking to build, oh, I don't know, a hotel, and it's going to cost me $20 million to build. Uh, I've got some estimate of day night spent that'll be spent there and what they're likely to pay and that you'll come along and analyze that future stream to see whether the investment is a worthwhile one exactly exactly and also too i'm guessing you can value other aspects to that project that aren't across the market getting a price, but nonetheless have a have a cost or a return maybe to the wider society? Um, yes. Um, the, um, the, the basic tool is, is market um, price, um, but there are extensions to that to things like um, human lives, as, as we're talking about, as we will. We're going to talk about human life yeah. because most people, do most people in your experience go, yuck, you can't do that? including um, the uh, Prime Minister, um, when it was put to him during the COVID, um, um, the height of the COVID period, that there was an economist called Martin Lally who was uh, doing some work that suggested that um, one would price lives. So he replied, we don't do that. Well, we do. Tell me, he says we don't do that, and you're saying they do. Yeah. Explain that to me. Well, we run a public health system. There's no limit to the number of things you can do to help people. But at some point, you've got to cut off. You can't spend all the resources in your society on helping people with medical problems. You've got to stop at some point. And the point we stop is our current health budget of about uh, $20 a year. So some things get a tick and some things get across. And a very uh, pointed example of that is the Pharmac budget. It has a budget of about a billion or so, and it has to decide which medicines, which drugs are going to be bought and which aren't. And some of these purchase decisions get a yes and some get a no. So how do you decide which ones are yes and which ones are no? Well, if you've uh, got a medication that costs X dollars, you have to say to yourself, well, how many lives is that going to save? 
And you've got two different currencies here. You've got the dollars you're paying and the benefits are coming and the lives you're saving. You've got to translate uh, the lives you're saving into money in order to compare it with cost. And the way you do that is to put a value on, on life. Um, now, you may do that explicitly or you may do it implicitly. Pharmac um, doesn't do it explicitly. It simply ranks the projects that are available to it in terms of the ratio of cost to, um, to lives saved. And it goes down that, that list, obviously choosing the ones for which the cost relative to the lives saved is cheapest, it goes along that list until it runs out of money. Mm. And at the point it runs out of money, at that point, it has effectively put a, a price on life and said, up to this point, these lives are worth saving. Beyond it, they're not. In the given, our given our budget. Given our budget. Um, the medical system, um, the government funds a project at um, the University of Otago called the Burden of Disease Epidemiology. It's run by a number of uh, prominent medical academics uh, who were quite prominent during the uh, COVID um, period. Uh, Professor Michael Baker and Professor Nick Wilson, Otago University. So they run this program to try to decide which kinds of health interventions are worth engaging in. And they quite explicitly uh, value a, um, a life year at uh, GDP per capita, which is um, about $70,000 at the moment. So in their published papers on their burden of disease epidemiology um, website, they repeatedly refer to this value of a, a life year, one extra life, one, one extra year in a person's life. They value it at GDP per capita, which is about $70,000. And they use that to decide which possible health interventions uh, should be recommended and which should not be. So um, that's them. Um, Treasury is also involved in, um, it has a, um, um, a, a template for the whole public sector, would like the whole public sector to be using this template for assessing projects. And some projects, their benefits come wholly or partly in the form of lives that are saved. So Treasury puts uh, a price on, on, on life for the purposes of this analysis. The Ministry of Transport, um, they are engaged in spending money on projects that, um, amongst other things, save lives. You might have a, um, a, um, a wicked corner um, somewhere in the country um, where people have come off the edge and, and died, and there's a project to improve that, that wicked corner. Um, the Rimataka Hill Road for any Wellingtonian is full of these wicked corners, and progressively over time they've been straightened out. One of the benefits of straightening it out is to, to save lives. So the Ministry of Transport explicitly values a life um, at about $5 million. Um, so whole swathes of the public sector in New Zealand are engaged in making decisions about which lives, which projects to save lives are worth engaging in. And most of them explicitly value um, a life, but some of them, Pharmac, just do it implicitly. Yes, so when we go back to the Prime Minister, if we're thinking about Pharmac, uh, their drugs are designed to relieve suffering and to save lives. If you're looking at drugs that save lives and you've got a limited budget, 
then you want to spend your budget to best effect, which is obviously to save lives, the most lives that you can. And I mean, you're either going to do that implicitly, explicitly, or you're not going to do it, which is going to be totally irrational because you might spend $5 million on a drug and save one life when that $5 million could have been spent and saved 100 lives. Correct? Exactly, exactly. And and when the prime minister's making decisions or a government's making decisions, they're deciding the size of Pharmac's budget. And they're also deciding which barriers get uh, built on the Rimatakas. And what you'd like them to be is consistent because it might be that they're spending $5 million to save, I'm making this up, five lives. But if they gave that $5 million to Pharmac, they would save 100 lives. Well, you'd give the money to Pharmac, right? Because you're not aware of the people whose lives you're saving, but you're making that decision. And and the government is doing that day in and day out. And so the idea that um, Chris Hipkins doesn't do that, he's either lying to us because he does do it, or he's stupid and he doesn't realize he's doing it <laughs> because you're doing it, right? You can't avoid it. Yeah, well, I, I don't think um, Mr. Hipkins is, is um, the latter. And I don't think it's the former. I think um, one of the difficulties in um, that anybody faces, particularly when you're being bombarded with questions about all sorts of subjects, and that, that happens um, when you're Prime Minister at the time, Mr. Hipkins was Minister of Health, um, or, or some related responsibility, I don't recall it exactly, but you're bombarded by journalists with questions um, and you have to respond immediately and you just give an off-the-cuff response that you think seems right and you may very well 10 seconds after saying it think, oh, that's not right. So I, I, I prefer to err on the side of generosity when, when looking at people who are being um, subject to journalist questions that they have got no prior warning of. I, I'd be generous in this area. Fair enough. Because um, I'll never forget uh, sitting in Parliament and hearing Ruth Dyson, who I can't remember was Minister of something or other, but her responsibility was uh, industrial safety. And they were passing some draconian legislation, which probably means we get cones everywhere and hazard plans and fences you know, you can't go up a, a ladder without a fence and all this sort of stuff. It was this sort of political response. And she said she wouldn't stop until there were, I'm paraphrasing here, I haven't got the exact words, she wouldn't stop until there were zero accidents at work. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, that's absolutely impossible because by their nature, there's always going to be accidents. You can minimize them, but you can't ever eliminate them because the cost of doing so would be disproportionate. And I thought, like you, that that was a slip of the tongue or political hyperbole. But I remember discussing it with her, and it wasn't. She genuinely believed, I kid you not, 
mm. that government could carry on making legislation mm. until there were no accidents at work, which would also almost mean being wrapped in cotton wool and not going to work. And we shouldn't forget, and you know, you don't have to comment on this, but we have a minister of transport, I think a um, junior minister, associate minister, who believes there should be zero car accidents, zero deaths, which with present-day technology is not on the horizon. Right. Well, there is a way, Rodney, of ensuring that there are no deaths on the road. And um, this policy was, in fact, adopted back in the 1890s when cars were first introduced to New Zealand. That the legal requirement, I think, was that the car had to be preceded by a pedestrian walking in front of it. Um, Even uh, though I suspect the pedestrian might do something wrong. But it's just, it's it's that idea that you don't look at what is this going to mean in practice? And just weighing it up, which is what an economist does every day and what we implicitly do every day. What an economist does, it seems to me, Martin, is lay it out rigorously and you can look at it and you can say, well, I don't think that's right. And you've got something to argue about and to one of a better phrase, make it rational because you're then, with that information, able to make the best decision in terms of lives saved, right? And so I do, I do appreciate your 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 work, and it's important that you're not you're not being callous, you're being the reverse. You're trying to say, given what we've got, given the options that we have, what is the best decision that we can make? to save the most lives, right? And yet somehow um, you're the callous one and people that are making, to use the phrase, suboptimal decision makings are letting people die that could be saved. Mm. That's true, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The other, thing, the other thing I notice in politics, Martin, is um, it's very bad when you get into a situation where the objective becomes everything to hell with the cost, right? And I think, I don't want to touch on this because we've got other things to, to touch, but the glaring example of that was the COVID response where literally someone would get sick, we'd made the political decision not to allow this bug into New Zealand, and we'd shut down the entire economy to prevent it happening. And at no stage was the government thinking, well, what happens if we do something else? If you know what I mean? That to me was huge cost, and I was struggling to see the, the long-term benefit. And again, Mr. Hipkins was a big part of that. Yes, um, I, my examination of that COVID issue uh, leads me to the conclusion that no cost-benefit analysis was ever performed by uh, anyone at the behest of government to facilitate the uh, lockdown decision. 
And the nearest that the government ever came to it um, was that at the time of the lockdown, uh, March the 23rd, 2020, that very same day, um, two medical academics um, who were advising the government at that time, and I referred to them earlier, Michael Baker and um, Nick Wilson of Otago University, but they published a paper estimating the uh, deaths if we did not lock down at about 10,000. And not all deaths are equal. A person who's 80 years of age hasn't got long to go. That person's life is not as valuable as a two-year-old who's uh, got another 80 years to go. And the way that medical academics uh, address that point, that not all lives are equally valued, is that they instead say that all life years are potentially equally valued. So if an 80-year-old has only got another five years to go and a newborn baby's got, got 80 years to go, the newborn baby's life is worth considerably more um, than the 80-year-old. So what they do is they value life years. Mm. And um, they estimated that the likely, the, the typical COVID victim, um, if we didn't lock down, would only have about another five years to go anyway. So those 10,000 deaths would give rise to 10,000 times five equals 50,000 lost life years. And they estimated that each of those life years was worth about $50,000. And therefore, all up, those lost lives, if we didn't lock down, would be worth about $2.5 And in this paper, they urged the government, the very day that it locked down, they urged the government to check their analysis and figure out what the cost of the lockdowns would be. And they clearly indicated that if the cost of the lockdowns were less than this two and a half billion figure, being 50,000 life years times $50,000 each, that if the cost of the lockdown were less than two and a half billion, the lockdown was worth doing. Implicitly, it followed that if the costs were more than two and a half billion, the lockdown was a bad idea. Well, I saw that paper and I emailed Michael Baker and I said, Surely, Michael, if we lock down, the economic costs in terms of the lost GDP are going to be much more than $2.5 billion, surely. And he emailed back and said, well, you're the economist, that, that's your area. Well, um, shortly after that, um, in April, Treasury's analysis on the economic costs of the lockdown became available. And Treasury were indicating, with a bit of analysis of their work, that the economic costs of the lockdown in terms of lost GDP would be of the order of about $25 billion. So about Jeepers. 10 times more than the threshold that, that Michael Baker and Nick Wilson had um, had uh, proposed. So if one took these two pieces of information, the work by Professors Baker and Wilson and combined it with Treasury's figures, both of these pieces of information were available to the government. If someone had just married the two together, 
the conclusion would have been that lockdowns didn't pass the cost, the conventional cost-benefit test. So that's about the nearest the um, government ever came, it seems, to having a cost-benefit analysis. It had the two pieces, one piece from the professors, another piece from Treasury. It could have married those two together and reached the conclusion that lockdowns were not a good idea. So that's the nearest that... I think they ever came to, to having um, analysis. Now, interestingly, um, despite the fact that on March 23rd, um, Professors Baker and Wilson didn't have their own sense about GDP losses to complete their analysis, that one of those two um, academics, Professor Nick Wilson, a few months later in June of 2020, he produced a paper an academic paper in conjunction with a number of Australian academics. It went up to a website. It's still there. It wasn't published, but it went up to a website. And it estimated that it did the analysis for New Zealand and Australia on their lockdown policies. And it estimated that lockdowns would only make sense um, if a, um, a life year were valued at more than about 400,000 New Zealand dollars. Now, that's not what they were valuing life years at. They were valuing them at GDP per capita, which was about $70,000, $70,000 then. So clearly, that analysis by Professor Wilson um, and his co-authors that was produced in June 2020 indicated that in both New Zealand and Australia, lockdowns did not pass the cost-benefit test. I did my own work of that kind and, and reached similar conclusions. And I've never seen any other cost-benefit analysis done by anyone who was advising the New Zealand government um, other than that paper by, by Nick Wilson. It was pretty rigorous and it reached um, the conclusion that I'd already reached myself, that the lockdowns weren't justified by a standard cost-benefit analysis. Um, as you'll be aware, um, once we went into the lockdowns, the government uh, primarily drew its um, analysis on what to do and what not to do in this area from uh, a team of academics who were headed by Professor Sean Hendy at the University of Auckland. And they produced a lot of work. They posted it to um, their website. It's all there. And at no point in all of the analysis that Prof Hendy and his colleagues did, did they ever do a cost-benefit analysis. Now, that isn't because they were unaware of this technology, this idea of putting values on lives and so forth, because in at least one of the papers on their website, they refer quite favourably to this kind of analysis, but they never did it themselves. So it's all all very very interesting. Very well, and, and the interesting thing about the analysis you've just provided to us, the GDP loss by Treasury, and uh, Professor Wilson and Michael Baker's analysis of lives that would be lost if we didn't lock down, is that with all the unknowns in front of us, this was government's own best estimates, if you like, because they were relying on Michael Wilson, uh, Nick Wilson and Michael Baker, and they obviously rely on Treasury. So it wasn't like you sitting in your office coming up with your numbers and there being a debate about whose numbers were right. It was just the sheer 
analysis of their own advisors would suggest it was a poor idea. And following on from that, you could say in crude terms that more lives could be saved if we didn't lock down because we could have taken those billions of dollars of extra GDP and spread them around road transport, pharmac, hospitals to better effect to save more lives than the 50,000, I think you said, uh, life years lost. That's on their numbers, correct? Yes. My own analysis um, at the time um, on the number of lives that would have been lost if we hadn't locked down was somewhat less than the 10,000 yes. figure of the professors. I thought it would be at worst about half that. <clears throat> and I arrived at that conclusion by... Um, doing a statistical analysis on live, lives lost per million of population in, in European countries. Um, and I, I limited it to European countries because data in this area, you can't place any faith in data from China or Russia or anywhere in Africa, et cetera, et cetera. There's only a quite small proportion of countries in the world that you could really tr trust the, the death data that, that was coming out of them. And Europe was a hot spot of those high credibility um, countries. Mm. And they were, the European countries are similar in a lot of other ways as well. It may be there's, there's ethnic differences in death rates from something like COVID. Well, Europe is ethnically pretty homogenous. So I did the analysis on the 30 European countries. And what I found was that um, whether a country locked down or not didn't seem to have any discernible impact on its death rate. That the things that differentiated death rates across European countries were things like population density. Mm. If your population density is higher, your death rate's going to be higher. Well, there's no surprise in that. You pack people closer together, it makes it easier for contagious diseases to jump. Um, it was also affected by whether you're an island. Unsurprisingly, the lowest death rates in Europe were um, in places that were islands, Iceland, Greenland, Cyprus. And you can see why, plausibly, being an island. That's a massive water barrier that obstructs the flow of the, the virus across uh, into, into your country. And also how quickly um, um, you got hit. If you got hit early, which was Italy and France, unsurprisingly, your death rate was higher because you, um, you didn't get the benefit of learning what was happening in other countries before you finally got hit. So these variables indicated um, to me um, how one might estimate New Zealand's um, death rate if we had locked down. So I used that model to estimate what the death rate would be in New Zealand if we didn't lock down. And I came to the conclusion that we'd have about 5,000 deaths up till the end of 221 when the vaccine was expected to arrive. And after that, it's a whole different ballgame. No one's going to lock down after that, I, I figured. <clears throat> so on that basis, I thought that the professor's figure of 10,000 deaths was um, somewhat too high and my analysis was, was about half that. But it wouldn't have mattered. <clears throat> Even with their figure of 10,000 deaths, uh, coupled with um, the estimation of the GDP losses, it still didn't stack up. Um, the lockdown still didn't stack up. 
The interesting thing, Martin, about uh, your analysis there is you don't actually have to get into the data, you know, because what kills someone can be fought. And so someone can simply die. Uh, I I had a friend's dad die at 93, a COVID death. But, you know, for five years, he couldn't recognize his, his own son. So he was literally on totally borrowed time. Um, he literally died of old age, but they put it down to COVID. And so he became a COVID statistic and was one of your five years. But no one felt that knew him that it was the COVID that killed him. You know, he was, it was, he could have fallen over in the bath or anything. So, but your analysis and is so stark that you can accept the data because you don't need to be, and this is the great thing about economics, I'm trying to get to this in a, in a poor way, that accepting the data as it is, the lockdown doesn't make sense economically because you can make better decisions than that to save lives. And someone arguing the data at that point is missing the boat to say, oh, it wouldn't be that many lives, because what they have to argue is that it would be, what, 10 times that number, right? It's got to be, uh, um, a I think it would be 100,000 lives to make sense, just from what you said there, um, to be worthwhile in terms of cost-benefit. You do, you, it, the, the analysis that you do kills it, but also focuses on the threshold that would have to be reached, which was never in prospect. I explained that extremely poorly, but I think you got my drift. Maybe you can have a go at explaining it better than no, I No, no, you, you are right. <clears throat> that, um, if you're not sure how many people might die, but you're prepared to um, accept that the GDP losses are, are X over here, you can then, if you have a value per life here that we accept, you can then deduce from that how yes. many lives would have to be lost in order to justify the lockdowns. So, yes, yeah. um, what you're doing is perfectly sensible, and that figure would just be implausibly large. No no, no recognised expert was um, suggesting numbers um, that would be of that, um, of that magnitude. Well, the great thing about the analysis that you're talking about, it also works to dial down the emotion and dial back the hysteria because numbers have a way of doing that, don't they? That um, And analysis. And I don't think people appreciate it doesn't have to be exact. You know, just working the numbers that we have we can start to see this is a dopey decision. What? And here are people over here arguing, oh, it won't be 10,000, it'll be 80,000, or no, it won't be 10,000, it'll be 5,000. Is irrelevant to whether you have a lockdown or not, because what you're showing is that on the numbers available to the government, it would have to be 100,000 plus deaths that you, uh, lives that you save, um, it seems to me. So um, again, so much of the debate can be knocked over day one. Mm. I can understand them not doing it at the start. What I can't forgive 
is going on and on and on like a sunk cost and repeating and repeating the mistake when we actually had time to be doing this sort of analysis to constantly critique the decisions that the government of the day was taking. You know, you can imagine day one, oh, let's shut the border, let's do this because we're not sure what we're dealing with here. But subsequent to doing that, you've got time to do some analysis, and it was never done. Mm. I would say as well, Rodney, that <clears throat> not only was no um, cost-benefit analysis done, but that the hypothesis that in the early stages, at the time we locked down, we were reasonably terrified that this was a new Spanish flu. And that, in my view, is a mistake. Um, a very significant piece of information arose very early on in the pandemic. So it starts in December in China. And what you see in the early stages from <clears throat> normal sources like, like countries is that you can count the number of deaths, but you don't know how many people have been infected. Yes. Um, if you've got 10,000 people dying <clears throat> and 20,000 people were infected, then that's an infection fatality rate of 50%. And that's absolutely horrendous. Any ailment that produces a, an infection fatality rate of 50% um, ought to scare the living daylights out of you. Um, so what happened in the early stages was that a passenger ship called the Diamond Princess um, was in the um, China Sea. It visited China um, at some point in late 2019, early 2020, and it picked up a case and then headed for Japan. And by the time it got to Japan, um, lots of people were infected on the ship. And the Japanese government quite reasonably um, said that you people are not getting off until we um, get you all sorted out. So the ship was quarantined off Japan and there were a few thousand people on the ship and everybody got tested. It was a perfect experiment. Perfect. Perfect experiment. You had a, a laboratory that was closed off from the rest of the world. We knew it's the exactly. It's the experiment you would like to do, but would be unethical to do. It would be unethical. But there it was. It was by sheer chance it was there for us. We had a few thousand people on the ship. Um, the passengers were by and large uh, old. The crew were by and large healthy and young. So you had the two groups that you were particularly interested in in a perfect laboratory experiment. So they, they tested everyone on the ship. And despite the fact that these people were in close proximity and, I don't know, the air circulation system is presumably pumping it all over the ship, despite the fact there were a few thousand people on the ship, they determined, the Japanese authorities determined that only 700 of them were actually infected. And uh, some dispute over how many of them died. Was it 10? Was it 12? <clears throat> Something like that, maybe 14. 
and all of them old, none of them the healthy young crew. So <clears throat> what that told you straight away is that COVID is not frighteningly contagious, at least the variant at that time. Omicron turned out to be considerably more contagious to the point where, so far as I'm aware, practically everyone in New Zealand has caught it. But back then, the version we were dealing with, clearly it wasn't frighteningly contagious. Um, and amongst people who got it, the death rate, was it 10 or 12 out of 700? Well, it's about 1.5%. And these are people who are quite old. Their immune systems are quite weak. Now, that data was all available on the day before the government made the decision to lock down on the March the 23rd. So they already knew that <clears throat> on March 23rd, 2020, when they locked down, that first of all, this isn't Spanish flu. Spanish flu was killing healthy adults, <clears throat> people in the prime of their lives. We could see clearly from Diamond Princess, COVID isn't like that. It's killing people with weak systems. It's old people. And the infection fatality rate is not horrendous. It's not 50%. It seemed to be about 1.5% amongst that group. And the proportion of people who you've potentially exposed to it in the confines of the ship, less than half of them got it. Um, so all of that told me by March 23rd, this is not something that I am terribly, terribly concerned about. This, this is a problem, but this is not Spanish flu. So I found it difficult to understand the extraordinary hysteria that um, people were demonstrating about this. And the conclusion I've come to is this, that the, the media um, likes to catastrophize things. That's how you sell your product. You're not going to sell your papers by telling people that nothing happened in the world today, everyone's happy. If a plane goes down, if a war starts, if there's an earthquake, if there's a contagious disease, that's gold. That, that saves you. That gives you the front page story. Now, I'm not trying to present the media as callous. It's just the nature of their business. They're selling a product. And you sell a product if you've got a dramatic story. So the media subconsciously Perhaps, let's be reasonable, that this isn't some calculated Machiavellian um, strategy. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt that they are subconsciously inclined to catastrophize things. We know they do that all the time, so they did it with COVID. And they were so incredibly successful at doing it that practically everybody in the country, even people that I thought of were sound, rational, calm people who would analyse things, got tipped over the edge into this hysteria. And politicians, Jacinda, Chris, um, even, even David Seymour, they all looked at this, the hysteria in the public, and they thought, we've got to go with that. Now, if there was one politician in this country who would resist this, it would have been David Seymour. And David was not unaware of my analysis. I sent it to him and many other people, but no response. And politicians, I'm not faulting David in particular, you want to be elected to 
to have an effect, to do the things you want to do. And if you in March 2020 said you're to the population of New Zealand, you're overreacting, calm down, um, you're not going to get votes. So it was perfectly rational of all politicians, including David Seymour, to say, right, we've got a lockdown. So there we went over the waterfall. And, and of course, it became a vicious circle where the media are catastrophizing, the public are getting scared, the politicians react, the public get more scared, the media can catastrophize more, and then it gets to the point where if anyone um, speaks up and they don't care about granny and um, they're they suffering misinformation because they've read an analysis of the Diamond Princess, which must be wrong because no one would be running around scared uh, if it was as you say. So it became this incredible, like a mob hysteria and back and forth where in one part the politicians were scaring the public, the public were scaring the politicians, the media were catastrophizing, then they started to get scared by the politicians and the public, and it was this. And inevitably, inevitably, the media has a choice. Um, there are people with... Um, expertise that it can go to. I mean, clearly I'm not an epidemiologist. Let's let's leave me out of it. Um, just focus on the epidemiology issues. There's a range of people that uh, the media could have gone to. Um, Michael Baker, Nick Wilson, they got the airtime. Sean Hendy, they got the airtime because they were saying what <clears throat> everyone wanted to hear, that this is a really, really scary thing and um, you need to bunker down. Now, there are other experts in New Zealand who were saying, calm down, but they either got no airtime or they were presented in the media as fringe, as misinformed, as spreaders of disinformation and so forth. Oh, I'm not going to mention any names, but um, there it is. So that's the, the extra element to the cocktail, that the available expertise, instead of all of it being presented to the public, so the public can see there's a range of opinion amongst the epidemiological experts, the public were presented with certain people as the experts, and the others, if they got any attention at all, were being presented as sources of disinformation. Because once you had established it as a public health scare, any suggestion that it wasn't a public health scare risked lives. Yes, if you believe that this is Spanish flu multiplied by five. Yes then it is rational for you to either censor contrary voices or characterise them as sources of disinformation. Um, that, that is kind of a, a rational response if you believe that this is Spanish flu times five or ten. But it wasn't. The problem was it wasn't Spanish flu times It's five. interesting what you say because um, when I was at the protest, um, for my sadly only one day. At Parliament. I, yes. yes. I texted a long-time friend of mine who's a very senior journalist, 
And we've had dinner at each other's places. And while he could write critical articles with me, we trusted each other. I hadn't been in touch with him for some time. And of course, I was like you. You know, I was seeing, it was like being in a different movie. They were in a movie where it was Spanish flu, and I'm in a movie where it's a bad flu. Um, and I, we had about 30 texts hurriedly back and forth because I said, why don't the journalists come and report the protesters? And he was explaining to me that they were terrified. Not terrified of the protesters. But of their fellow journalists? Uh, no, of COVID. Oh, Okay. You know, to the, when that protest was on, they were still thinking if they came down there, they could catch COVID and die. Well, they could have worn a mask. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think, Rodney, that any journalist who woke up one morning and thought, oh, my gosh, this isn't Spanish flu times five. This is more like ordinary flu. Um, let me just say I'm not saying it was yeah, yeah. epidemiologically the same as common flu. I'm saying it was much closer to common flu than Spanish flu times five. Any journalist who contemplated writing a story along the lines of, I think we're all panicking, it wouldn't have got published. The editor would have thought you were nuts and your career prospects in the industry would be severely damaged. And all those thoughts would go through your mind as a journalist if you contemplated writing something like that. So I think Journalists became afraid of one another and affect what yes. their their colleagues, what their yes. editors would think of them if they would dare to say the emperor has no clothes. And of course, we had good reason. They had good reason to think that, because you and I both know professionals, academics, and GPs who did speak out. Man. They lost their jobs. They lost their medical registration. You've only got to do that a couple of times. It's like a crucifixion. You're looking at that and you're thinking, "Whoa!" Um, <laughs> let, let, let me gonna... tell you. A, let me tell you a story on that subject, which I think is pertinent. I, I was born in the mid 1950s. Um, it was a time um, when a medication was available to women uh, who were suffering from morning sickness, and it seemed to be doing a good job. It was called thalidomide. It was widely prescribed in New Zealand. And in my childhood, I recall my mother um, saying to me that she had gone to the GP. She was suffering from significant morning sickness and carried me and asked her, asked her GP for his advice, and he said to her, don't touch anything. It's not worth the risk. Now, the GP could have prescribed thalidomide to her. He didn't have any, it seems, any particularly negative view about thalidomide, but he was just cautious. And he said to her, don't touch anything. Now, as we know, thalidomide turned out to be a complete disaster complete disaster, it caused all these horrific deformities, but it took a while for that fact to come through. So GPs like him, the GP my mother meant to, he was a hero. He was doing what you would hope a doctor would do, warn you about risks. 
But if a GP said to a woman any time in the last two years who came to him and was contemplating getting vaccinated, don't do it, it's not worth the risk, he'd be in trouble with the medical council. So yeah, it's a funny world. It's a funny world um, that we've, we've come to. We've, um, and everybody, everybody in the medical profession in New Zealand knows about thalidomide. They all know that that stuff was prescribed in Britain and New Zealand and everyone, the, the people who made those decisions in the medical system thought it was fine and it was a horrific mistake. They also know in the United States that the FDA would not approve it. Oh, at the time. Sorry? They wouldn't approve thalidomide. The FDA did not approve thalidomide in the United States, with the result that nobody got those horrific birth deformities in the United States. It was Britain, New Zealand, and a few other places that prescribed this awful medication. So this is this is all known in the medical profession. They all know that their profession sometimes makes mistakes. Now, they've been doing this whole business of vaccination since was it Edward Jenner in the 1760s or something. And I have to say, as someone who got all kinds of needles poked into them at school to be vaccinated against polio and diphtheria and all these other things, I would say to the medical profession overall that you've done a fantastic job. Ever since Edward Jenner, you've saved zillions of lives. I take my hat off to you. You guys are heroes, but you are not infallible. Mm. You sometimes make mistakes, and thalidomide is the outstanding example. So whether the vaccines turn out to be a problem, well, we don't know. They may or may not be. And a person who says, look, I'm not sure about this. I don't want to take the risk. They are not a source of disinformation. They are not some lunatic or nutter. They are a person who's acting quite rationally. Well, look at your mother and look at her GP. I mean, your mother on GP advice rejected thalidomide. If that had been the COVID vaccine, he could never have said that. And if she queried it with him, she would be a nutter. Oh. It is. It is. Um, it is extraordinary. We've strayed off cost benefit, but it's it's the idea that dissent and analysis is always important, but it's particularly important at times of crisis. Right? You're not you're not being a traitor or treasonous. The person that questions at a time of crisis, is the most valuable person of all. But here's the problem, Rodney. Yes. If COVID really is Spanish flu multiplied by 10 and the vaccine is absolutely safe, then people who took the vaccine will turn out to have done the right thing and people who opposed it and incited other people not to get vaccinated are a problem. Yeah. <laughs> we just don't know which of those two worlds we're in. No. In no. 20 years' time, we'll know, and we'll yeah. be able to say, yes, but right now, we just don't know. All medications, particularly in their first few years, are question marks. And the best we can say is that the track record of this industry in producing vaccinations that are safe and successful is extraordinarily high, but it isn't 
that's the problem we're in. Um, there's and that, no easy answers to this. Well, but, 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 but there is an but answer. Persecuting a GP simply because they say, look, I'm cautious here. I don't recommend it for a pregnant woman. And I understand from the mainstream media there have been cases of that kind. They're not GPs who are saying this is a magnetic chip that Bill Gates is putting in your arm. <laughs> you don't have to be at that level of nonsense. A GP who simply says, look, you're pregnant. I don't think you should take the risk. That person is not some sort of nutter or, um, or conspiracy theorist. That, that is... A, a, Based on historical experience, it is a reasonable concern to have. And that's why informed consent is so critical. And the ability to say no, because um, you and I knew when they were saying, looking down the camera with certitude, saying this is safe and effective, you and I knew they couldn't know that. I mean, they could not know that. It was not possible to know that. But they said it. And then they said, take this or, lo or lose your job. Like, lose your life, lose your house, lose everything. Because that's what your job is. Because you can't just lose that job and go and get another one. Because that, to me, was the crossing of the Rubicon. Because informed consent was out the door, along with any GP saying, I'm not sure about this. And that would be like compulsorily requiring every pregnant woman to have thalidomide. Exactly. Exactly. At, at, least, at least we had the opportunity with thalidomide for women not to take it and for doctors to advise against it but it is an extremely cautionary tale um and, and it's not the only one rod no, of course there have been other cases i, I emphasize that the track record of the pharmaceutical industry and the regulatory bodies is pretty good they're mm. way into the 90s it's mm. about as good as you could hope to get but they're not perfect mm. and when it comes to um vaccinating children one of the few certainties that we have about COVID is that the risks to uh, children are very, very, very small. Very, they're infinitesimal. They make the risk of a car accident look high by comparison. Let's just take an example. This is a country of 5 million people. Every year, about 300 people die on the roads. Okay, that's you, I, we've all got about a 1 in 17,000 chance every year of being killed in a road accident. Just say but that again, Martin. You, so you there's I... 5 million people in this yes. country and about um, 300 of them die every year. Yeah. Okay. So that's about one chance in 17,000 that in the course of the next year, you, I, or any randomly selected person in this country will be killed in a car accident. Got it. That doesn't stop us from getting in cars. We judge that's a pretty small risk. What's the risk of a, an unvaccinated five-year-old dying of COVID? Way, way less than one in 17,000. It's just it's so low. It's into the one in some million. Uh, 
providing their healthy child if they've got serious pre pre-existing conditions and it's different but if they're a healthy five-year-old or a healthy 10-year-old or a healthy 20-year-old the risks are dwarfed by the risk of car accidents so one of the few certainties that we have in this area is that with COVID is that risks to healthy young people were just so low they weren't worth worrying about. So a doctor who said to their patient, look, uh, I think you should be cautious, you're pregnant, don't do it, um, they're not really doing any harm. They're not really doing any harm. So persecuting a person like that, it doesn't make any sense. It's just madness and it's, it's the madness of crowds. There's a very famous, very famous book by um, a guy called Charles McKay that was written in the 1840s called The Madness of Crowds or, or words to that effect. And he goes through all these episodes in human history where the population gets hold of some idea, some fantastic idea that's complete nonsense, and it just seems to spread like wildfire. Um, the idea that... Um, Older women who aren't married are witches and need to be burnt at the stake. There was a whole industry in Europe of people who would go round towns finding witches. Now, that's how they earned a living. So you can't imagine them turning up at a town and saying, no witches here. If you if you pay. Of <laughs> As an, economist, <laughs> as an economist, I naturally think that it's financial so incentives explain an awful lot of human behaviour. So these witch finders, <laughs> their financial incentives were to go around and find witches. So they'd turn up at a town and say, this girl's a witch, you need to burn her. And this one over here is a witch too, you need to burn her. And here's, here's my fee. Well, this went on in Europe for hundreds of years. And, and if oh, you don't, if you're paid to find witches, you'll find them. Yeah. Sadly. And if you're paid to sell newspapers, you will find Spanish flu times yeah. five. <laughs> yeah. And if you get research grants by hyping up a risk, you know, you can't help that even a subconscious bias to hyping up a risk. I mean, um, when I was at university, if you mentioned climate change in your research grant, you might be wanting to study some obscure ecology of some obscure slug, and you wouldn't get funding. But if you said, and this research on this obscure slug, well, shared valuable insight, <laughs> the effects of climate change, the funding would come because the government had set that as something to be concerned about. So it is a self-reinforcing um, analysis. Tell me this, Martin. You're in touch with what's going on in Wellington. Is there the analysis, the rigorous analysis that you're talking about being done at the time being done now, even in hindsight? Um, well, a number of people um, have um, done analyses on costs and benefits of, of lockdowns in um, a range of countries, and, and that work is out there. Um, 
In Australia, um, you'd be looking at um, Professor Gigi Foster at the University of New South Wales. Um, she's the sort of leading um, figure in Australia. There'll be people like her in Britain, Australia, and, and so forth. Um, so uh, analysis has been done. And as I've said, Professor Nick Wilson and his co-authors, um, they, they did work in June 2020 um, after the lockdown decision had been made, which suggested it wasn't worth doing. So it's out there, but you just you won't see it in the mainstream media. You, you just won't see it. They, they just won't report that sort of stuff. That's that's not in line with the narrative. Well, Martin, um, it's a sobering analysis that right at the start of this, the simplest bit of rigour in terms of cost-benefit on the available data would have changed the course of subsequent history and changed so much that has impacted on our lives. Well, well let me caution you that um, even if the government on March the 23rd had married together the work of um, Professors Wilson and Baker with the work of Treasury and concluded that on a standard cost-benefit analysis, lockdowns weren't justified, I suspect they would still have done it because, remember, politicians want to be re-elected. And if the country has been terrified successfully um, by the media into believing this is Spanish flu times five, I, I suspect they'd have done it anyway. Well, they did. They did. Um, and not one journalist, as you say, um, picked up on your work. Not one. Um, and also, of course, when you're looking at young children under 12, uh, no, sorry, it was over 12, wasn't it? They were had to be vaccinated to do their sports. Um, that's a decision being taken, a tough decision being taken by parents. You know, it's one thing to make a decision and keep your job as an adult, but to do it to your kids is he weighs heavy. And again, the risk, I couldn't understand it because the risk, as you say, was infinitesimal um, compared to hopping in a car. And you see crazy stuff parents doing with their kids and kids doing crazy stuff far worse hopping in a car. Well, well let, let, let me let me just emphasise that there's two reasons for vaccinating children. One of them potentially is to save them from COVID, and the the risks there were just so small it wasn't worth worrying about. The second reason for vaccinating children is the more people you vaccinate, the less likely the virus is going to circulate widely, and therefore the fewer people who are at most risk from COVID, um, the fewer of them are going to die. So there is this additional um, reason for doing it. Um, but even there, the, the benefits from um, vaccinating this, this group, um, these kids, in terms of the saving of lives in the high-risk category, that analysis was done by um, the, the Auckland um, team headed by Professor Hendy. And 
their own analysis didn't indicate that the additional number of lives that would be saved as a result of vaccinating kids would, would be very large anyway. Um, they, they were smallish numbers. Um, so in this case, what you're balancing out is the benefit is saving people in the high-risk group, a relatively modest number, um, versus um, enforcing the vaccine onto children by saying, if you don't get it done, the following things will be withdrawn. You can't go to school, you can't play sport, all these other things. So you've got to balance those liberty issues against saving of lives. So it isn't a conventional cost-benefit analysis, but it is, it's still a, a trade-off of, of yeah. one thing over here versus another thing. But even on, i just trying to get that clear, even on Dr. Hindi's own analysis, on his estimates and his assumptions, it didn't, it didn't make sense or it didn't necessarily make sense? I'm saying that his analysis was that if we got this group vaccinated, these, these children vaccinated, um, the, that would save some additional lives. But the yes. number wasn't large. You know, okay. It wasn't 10,000 or, no. or 80,000. It was, it was a couple of thousand. Or, or something. And what you're doing is, you, I get it, you're balancing that against the denying kids that weren't vaccinated their sport and their their cultural activities in school. And also that unknown risk if it's not as safe as we were sure. told. And also, of course, we now know not as effective in terms of stopping that spread. No, I, I, sh I should just emphasise in all of this. I mean, please. anyone listening into this may wonder, is, is Martin here some sort of um, anti-vaxxer or something? So that would be a reasonable question for anyone to, um, to pose. I got vaccinated twice. Um, the first time um, it was if I didn't get vaccinated, here's the following things you won't be able to do, Martin. So I formed the judgment that the risk, to, the benefit to me was pretty small from being vaccinated. I'm, I'm no spring chicken, but I'm pretty healthy. Um, on my own analysis, I thought the benefits to me of being vaccinated are pretty small. The costs in terms of the risk that this vaccine turns out to be another thalidomide, well, that's pretty small too. So they're both tiny. So um, I would like to be able to go out to cafes and so forth. So I'm going to get vaccinated. And then there was a more complicated reason the second time, but it related to the same sort of thing. So I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I, um, I, I simply look, look at the data that vaccines, including this one, are on the whole very, very successful um, mm. and, and low risk. But there, there's a possibility that they'll turn into a thalidomide. It's, it's interesting, though, that what tipped you over to taking the vaccine wasn't the health considerations. It was actually the government policy yep. of denying you your liberty to some extent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I gotta tell you, I was in the I was in the fortunate position where um not going out for dinner and coffees I saw as a pass. <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I could be a misanthrope and stay home, but um, I flipped when it was mandated, and I also had a funny thought in my head. I didn't think it would um, hurt people. I didn't. I knew they didn't couldn't be guaranteed it was safe, but I thought, oh well, you know, the chances will be low that it'll hurt people. But I also thought I'd rather die of COVID as a disease that's circulating 
than the bloody medicine that I decided to take, even if it was 100 to 1. I don't know if that's irrational or not. But it's a bit like um, doing something to yourself that kills you rather than being died by relatively natural causes going about your, your business and, and doing yeah, your there's thing. A, there's, a, there's a Latin expression for it, um, well, the Latin wording. Um, I don't know what the Latin equivalent to it is, but it's sins of omission versus yes. sins of commission. Yes. So I thought I'd rather die of a sin of omission um, than, than one of commission. And then, to be honest, I reacted sharply to the mandate, and that's it. Um, as it happens, uh, we do know that there have been um, people damaged, and indeed the government has acknowledged uh, deaths. Um, and in a young person who was no risk to COVID. Um, so it's um, it's a and no one's accusing anyone of being anti-vax, or that's just a political bump. Um, and when there's a risk, it's a much better path to go down as informed consent and people decide for themselves rather than having it bullied into it, um, whatever it is to me. I just don't understand why we had to be bullied. Well, you're treating it. the public like, um, like they're idiots. Yeah. If you say to the public, um, look, no medication's perfect, um, but based on the available evidence, we think the probability that this medication is safe is 99-point-something percent. We therefore strongly urge you to take yes. it. You're giving them the full information. But if you say to people, this medication is safe without qualification, and people can see on some website or other that Joe Blow has died of it, then it destroys your credibility as a source of information when you say this medication is safe. It's, it's a, it is a mistake to over-promote things. It is far better to simply say the truth, that based on the available evidence, we think this is medication is about as safe as we can expect anything to be. And yes. I, as minister whatever, I've been uh, vaccinated myself and I recommend it to everybody else. That's treating people like adults instead of like children who get told lies in order to get them to do the right thing. Yes, there's no such thing as a noble lie. Mm. Um, it's a very good place to end, Martin. I um, have enjoyed your time uh, very much and your analysis. And I hope that you will come back on because the actual subject matter <laughs> I had you to come on, we haven't got to, because we've got such a, I had not appreciated how the analysis that was available at the time was actually so damning um, of of the decisions and would give you pause for thought. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing with us. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we've had some real talk from economist Martin Lally. I, um, it's amazing, isn't it? You sort of sit there and you think, oh, value a human life, that's sort of a bit sick. Life should be sacred. And I'm one of those that thinks that life is sacred. But when you make a decision to hop in a car, you're making a decision about 
the risk of getting hurt and those in your car and those that you're coming down the road towards. And not just not just getting in the car, Rodney, but even if you get in the car, get on a motorway, you've got a choice. You can travel on the outside lane at 110k, mm. or you can travel on the inside lane at 50k. Who travels on the inside lane at 50k? But that's a choice that's available to you. Mm. You're not obstructing anyone. People can pass you. They'll honk at you, I suspect, and some of them will give you rude gestures. But you'll be far safer traveling at 50k than 100k. But who does it? Who does it? People have made a judgment about risk. There's that great analysis that gets done, Martin. I'm sure you're familiar with it about like when you bring in safety measures such as ABS braking. Which is a tremendous, um, a tremendous uh, advance in safety technology in a car. You get into a car without ABS, an old car, and you 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 you, you can't believe that you could never break going around a corner. You come into grief very quickly, or you smooth out a corner, and people still die because they adjust to the reduced risk, right? And they go faster around corners because they've got ABS braking now and it's a smoother corner and still people get killed. But, but do remember, Rodney, that when I was in my um, teenage years, the New Zealand death rate on deaths, annual deaths on the road, peaked at about 800. Yes. And today they're about 300. And the population today is well, it's almost twice what it was back then. So 800 deaths back then was like, 1600 today and instead we've got 300 so we've brought it down by a factor of five and that's notwithstanding the fact that people have adjusted their behavior maybe they're driving a bit um, faster because they know they've got abs brakes so the whole collection of things that have happened the technology technology improvements in cars um, the fact that you can't get a license as easily as you did before. Mm. All the work that's been done on making roads safer, collectively it has brought down the death toll on the roads uh, pretty fantastically. And when the Ministry of Transport makes judgments about which corners to clean up and so forth, they're, they're, from what I understand, doing rigorous cost-benefit analysis. Yes, and of course we're driving a lot more, a lot more cars per head of population, a lot more kilometres driven. And I would also add in there, I don't know if there's been any analysis of this, but uh, cell phones and helicopters being available and then the ability to deal with the first responders to deal with trauma, um, that too must have made a huge difference because without a cell phone and you come across some in a life-threatening circumstance, it's problematic. You've got to drive to the nearest town. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somewhat, the, the person you encounter has to drive to the nearest town, and by the time they ring someone, the, the person's died. So, yes, that's another factor. That, yeah. That's cool. we've, we've, yeah. We've we've achieved quite fantastic gains in this area. Yes, we have. Um, that's very good. Martin, thank you for being with us. You're on uh, Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. What a wonderful guest we've had today. What a wonderful morning. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Rodney. Cheers. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.